May Day. This is a call to all you educators out there. It's time to shift our schools. Welcome to Shifting Our Schools Podcast, Episode 8, How Do We Shift the School? Okay, well, welcome to Shifting Our Schools Podcast, Episode 8, and tonight, our essential question is how to shift. How do we get schools to shift? And uh, tonight joining me, we have David Carpenter from LessonsLearns.EduBlogs.org, as usual. And our special guest tonight, Brent Loken from, okay, help me with the school name here. Shinju International School. Shinju International School. Of course, only uh, only in Taiwan would we have this great <laughs> school name. In Asia, right? We got some great school names in Asia. Yeah, I love it. So, all right, uh, David, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. We, you know, we were just talking before the show. Uh, I was in Boracay, Philippines with my family just a few days ago, having a wonderful time, really relaxing. And it's good to get back to our very shifted school here at Sensu International School. And I'm, I'm extremely excited to have Brent, who's a very busy man, uh, come on and join us and share um, his experiences here at the school and helping it shift. So things are things are going well. How about for you? How are things for you, Jeff? Pretty good. We're a little late getting started. I had uh, parent-teacher conferences uh, tonight, and uh, we had a great shifting moment today at school. I uh, we did student-led conferences in our middle school, and I uh, for the first time we had kids use uh, their blogs as their e-portfolio platform, <laughs> and so That's it was cool. really cool today because I, I just sent out a Twitter message and said, hey, at school today, going to be a long one, student-led conferences, kids using blogs. And a bunch of people on Twitter Twittered back and said, hey, that's really cool. I would love to know how you're doing that. And it was so, it's so funny how I, things don't hit me until somebody else says, hey, that's cool. How are you doing that? And so I was like, well, you know, what we can do is we can video they, videotape this. So I went running over to the eighth grade team and I got a kid and a parent and said, give me a good kid and a parent willing to do this. And they came over to my office and I started up Camtasia. And so we screen captured their, the kids blog. And then using with Camtasia, you can also use a webcam at the same time. So down in the corner, you have a picture of the kid and their mom and the, uh, and the, the student's blog. And for 40 minutes, you get to join them in their conference and you get to watch him click through his blog, go through all of his, uh, all of his reflection posts. Uh, we listen to a music file. We watch a photo story that he created for his mom, which was a surprise. It was really, really cool. And so I spent huh. today editing that and hope, hopefully after we're done recording, I'll get it up on the web and they've already given us rights to, to put it on the web. But it was, it was one of those things where I should have been thinking about it. But I wasn't until somebody else said, you know, how does this work? And I'm, and all the ways we can use it within our school, not only share it with the educational world out there, but use it within our school, you know, as a, as a training model for new teachers to say, this is what a, a student led conference looks like at Shanghai American School. Kids are using blogs. Kids are reflecting in this space. They are using multimedia. And this is what a good product looks like. So it, I think it was pretty cool that way. And I, that's a, that's a long-winded window to say I'm doing really good. So. Oh, that's very cool. So, how are you doing tonight, Brent? 
Oh, I'm doing great, actually. Thank you for having me on the show. It's really good to be here. Yeah, no problem. Hey, David, why don't you go ahead and uh, jump in here and get us started with uh, our essential question tonight is how how do we shift these schools? And I'm so glad we got Brent here. We got somebody in a little in administrative uh, power here to kind of talk about how, how do we shift. So why don't you get us started? Yes, yes. Um, I put together a pretty long post on uh, how to how one could think about making the shift, and a few other uh, bloggers out there have been doing the same in recent weeks. And as our show is shifting our schools, and this is our primary essential question, uh, it's a it's exciting to come together and, and and really focus on this. And I suspect in the future, maybe every couple months, we'll come back and and revisit and, and look at what new learning we've come to to help us think about how we shift schools. Um, I'm going to uh, take, a, take a couple minutes and share a couple thoughts and offer a more evolutionary plan of action. Uh, when Brent comes on, and, and, and I stole the term evolutionary from, from Brent, uh, he's going to talk about a, a different approach. Um, so it would be nice, I think, for our listeners to to get a wide range of ways to to look at making the shift and where their schools are and and where they might be going um, to I guess I'll I'll share a couple main points uh I I think I put 10 in my post and they go back to uh my work in my previous school starting about in 2001 and one of the key components that helped us at uh, at my previous school in Hong Kong begin to make the shift. We 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 didn't become a full shifted school, but we we did move along. And I congratulate the, the teachers and the administrator administrators, uh, everyone for their hard work there. Um, that first component was the idea of having the instructional technologist or uh, educational technologist working with the library media specialists and joining the curriculum development process. And at the upper primary at HKIS, um, we had a collaborative team. We called it the uh, collaborative team. It kind of makes sense. <laughs> Where at each grade level, yeah, kind of a not too original. Uh, at each grade level, um, and, and this is a large school, you might have nine fifth-grade teachers, for example, we reviewed all the social studies and science units each year, so we were continually coming back and reviewing. And the way it was set up is that uh, for each of the units, there'd be two teachers that would come to these meetings along with administrators and other specialists. But as I was saying, I think that one of the key things that made helped uh, this process move along and uh, the shifting by changing the way we, we write our curriculum, which leads to the way we teach, was that both the IT person and the library media specialist were there as people who had graduate training and experience in designing instruction, in curriculum, in uh, obviously in technology and information literacy skills. So that was one of the big things that I think can really help a school if they're looking at how to move forward and shift towards whatever their goals would be, hopefully to be more of a school 2.0 or learning 2.0 teaching. Uh, That's one of the components. And then the second one still uh, is very much connected to the curriculum review process, and it's the whole idea of making it a very dynamic process and not Mm -hmm. just the whole idea in so many schools where it's, oh, no, we've got to go do curriculum or we're just going to, 
write a bunch of stuff down and put it in a binder and put it up on the shelf and it really won't go out and affect the way we we do business in our schools and the way we work in our classrooms. So I would just I would just put that point out there that it's so worthwhile getting everyone on board and uh, giving teachers uh, coverage during the day that they can come to these meetings. They don't feel like it's an extra, it's an add-on. Uh, let the teachers lead the way, that it's not an administrator-led uh, process, though they really need to be there. They need to validate it. They need to, to add their, uh, their, their scope that they can see the big picture of where the curriculum is in the younger, for the younger kids and then the older kids, but it, it really needs to be driven by the teachers. Um, so those are two big points. There's a lot more at my post, um, and so I'll stop there and we'll, we'll jump. Uh, and let me introduce Brent, who I've uh, gotten to know in the past year, and I've, I felt very fortunate to uh, get a job here at Sinshu International School, a very, very shifted school. And a great deal of, of the shifting uh, has come from Brent and Grant Ruskovich, our two of our uh, administrators, and there are a couple other people on our administrative leadership team. Um, but I, I thought we would start off letting Brent maybe share a little bit more about his job title. His title is Director of Curriculum and Innovation, and he's also a science educator as well. So, Brent, welcome to the show, and I thought Thank maybe that would be a good lead-in. Yeah. Um, a little bit about my title, Director of Curriculum and Innovation. I when love we... that. I love, I've love. i never heard innovation. I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. I get a lot of, yeah. Um, when we first started to build a school and build, like, like build a framework of it, one of the things that we wanted to really be was we wanted to be bold and we wanted to rethink everything. And when rethinking everything, we thought that it was very important to even rethink things such as titles because we believe that the titles that we give to people, the titles that we give to the administrators, the title, what we give to the students, to like the teachers, says a lot. So one of the things that we started to do was to try and give ourselves different types of titles that would fit what we were doing, and that's where curriculum and innovation actually, that's where it actually came from. We were going to look at teachers, and we were going to call them advisors. We were, we were actually looking at calling them coaches. Um, we're still thinking about possibly using those terms right now. We actually call everybody at our um, um, at our school educators because we feel like um, educators is a better term than actually um, to you know use the term teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really the rethinking of our titles that led to my particular title. That's cool. I like it. So what do you do? Like what? Where does the innovation fit in your title? Like how does well, how did how did you come up with that? Um, it came from looking at other schools, like um, at the Met Center. I don't know if you guys have heard of the Met Center, but it's a very, very, it's like a progressive center of schools on the East Coast. Right. And they are actually, I think there's some down in Australia right now. There, um, this these schools were actually started by this man named Dennis Litke, um about five or six years ago, and they speak of the word innovation quite a bit. Like where they are innovation with like curriculum, innovation with um, you know teachers and students, and they really rethink everything. Um, so it was really looking at their schools, rethinking their schools that got me to use that within my own title. 
That's cool. So is your school one-to-one? Are you guys one-to-one? Yes, we are the first one-to-one laptop school on island. Wow. And the first Mac school. Um, and that was a pretty bold step to be a Mac school. Oh, yeah, that's that's great. I didn't realize you guys were. So that's good. Yeah, and that was one of those decisions where, you know, we were sitting around – it was last March talking and we were thinking about computer labs and having computer labs and we just said, Oh, what the heck? Let's go one to one. And you know, while we're at it, let's, let's, let's go Apple. And that, that decision was made, um, one day sitting around a, just having this conversation and we were actually rethinking everything. And it's like, why should we have computer labs when we can actually, you know, go one to one? We're starting the school. So let's, let's do it. That's a great. And you said you did this like last March and rolled out one to one in what August? We did this last March and rolled out one to one in September. Wow. And so why? I mean, you know, we're talking we're talking about why shift, you know, and how do you shift? So why was it when you at your school when you were talking having these conversations, why did you decide that one to one was something that you either A wanted to do or B felt you had to do as in that's where education is going for me it's been the use of laptops and the use of computers within my own classroom my science and math classroom over the past um, seven or eight years and I would not be able to do what I am doing right now without these things it, it would be impossible and just to see like the change that it's made within me and what it has allowed me to do it has allowed me to make that shift um, from being the more traditional teacher to the more innovative teacher much more rapidly by having this tool. And what I've seen too many schools do is too many schools look at laptops and they look at you know technology, they say, well, if we have laptops, if, if, if we have computers, we're gonna be a shifted school. Mm-hmm. And that's all we need to do. Right. And um, they might be technologically shifted, but they're not philosophically shifted. So what we wanted to do at the same time was, well, at the same time that we we're shifting technologically, we also wanted to shift philosophically. That's great. And by doing those two at the same time, um, we can make huge changes extremely quickly, and that's what we've done. That's great. So how did you how did you do that? How did you change philosophically? Because you're right, you can't introduce a one to one program. And expect the technology to just be put in the hands of the kids and for teachers to come in and say, voila, we're going to teach differently. How did you – was there a process that you took teachers through? Was it something that you just expected teachers to do? And how did you have those conversations with teachers to say, look, we are a different school. Things are going to be different here. Well, uh, this is a very good question because it brings up – is it an evolution or is it actually like a revolution? And I'm beginning to feel like it's got to be a revolution. That it's pretty hard to expect teachers to philosophically change their mindsets, um, to change their philosophical mindsets about education, to change their philosophical mindsets about how to use technology. It's 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 really hard. I guess it's like trying to you know, expecting that you're you're going to change your spouse. It just doesn't happen. Um, and that what you have to do is that instead of expecting people to change philosophically, you have to get the people that are already philosophically on board at the beginning. And if they're not on board, then you've got to let them go. And I think one of the things that helps you to do that is to clearly define yourself at the very start, to say this is who we are and this is who we're not. 
um, so that people coming in know what type of school you are and what they can actually, um, you know, what they can um, um, expect. So when you're out, do, when you're going through the, you know, when we're talking internationally here, when you're out going through recruiting fairs, is it something that you make sure is on the mind of all of the people that all the candidates that you talk to? Absolutely. Yeah. I think when we're out there, we we do more of a job of trying to convince them not to come to our school. Right. Um, and if they can weather that process and still want to come, then they're the right fit. Yeah. Um, but we we're pretty open and honest. I mean, we it's like this is who we are. We put videos of the school out there, student work out there, and we say this is what we are. This is what we you know, expect that you will do. Um, and it's all about the fit. Yeah, and it's 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 not good for the school. It's not good for the kids, and it's not good for them if 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 we try and get somebody on board that's just not there. That's fantastic. Now, do you have a school board? Yes. And how did how did these conversations help bring them on board to know you know what this shift was going to look like? Was it much of but, a sell? Um, they were already with us, mm. and they were already looking for something different. But I mean, we were at the beginning of this, so we started from scratch. And that's a lot different than coming into a school that's already got a lot of institutional, you know, it's got all this history and all this baggage, you know, inertia. Um, So we didn't have that. Um, I've tried to do it at other schools where you've got the school board, you've, um, they've got the history, they've got the memory, and it's so much harder. Right. Um, So we were actually in a, it's kind of like a perfect storm. Yeah. We had the school board that was looking for something different. We had some visionary people that were looking for something different, and we came together, I think, and we were bold and made it happen. So That's great. That's great. So what kind of things are, are – are, now you're one-to-one just in the high school or middle school, high school? Uh, 7 through 12, we don't actually differentiate by middle school and high school. We go by institutes. We've got Institute 1, Institute 2, Institute 3. Institute 1 is grades 7 and 8. Institute 2 is grades 9 and 10. And Institute 3 is like the senior institute. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we do everything together. Um, And this is part of the philosophical shift, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So can you, yeah, explain that to me. So what's what's a day look like for a kid? Are there like six periods of classes? Is it set up still more traditionally that way, or how are these institutes working? The institutes, like the whole philosophy behind those is that the kids have the same teachers for two years in a row. That's cool. Sorry, we've got a cat problem here. <laughs> That's all right. Um, so they've, they've got the same, the same teachers for... For like two years in a um, row, and, and it, what it does is it, is it also allows you to build your curriculum over like two years as opposed to over one year. So what you are looking at is you're looking at a two-year curriculum, and when you get a kid in grade seven, you're actually looking at teaching them over two years, like a two-year math course. So you're not thinking of uh, out of like that math course as being math seven. You're thinking of it as being math with an institute one, and what do the kids need to leave these institutes? And then we also look at skills. It's like, what skills do they need to leave Institute 1, 2, and 3? And then we have them do a large exhibition, which is a 45-minute presentation to a large audience, which proves to the audience and to us that they are ready to move up to the next institute. Wow. Um, and it's in its like deepest form, if they're not ready to move up, they get off the conveyor belt and they stay where they are until they are ready to move up. That's very cool. That's very cool. So... 
Are you guys like IB or AP or anything like that? No, we've actually, um, I've fought those programs very hard. I think that elements of IB and AP are good, um, but we are designing our own our own curriculum based on what we believe is the best out there. So we've got maybe some elements of the AP or some elements of the IB, but we're definitely trying to stay away from any standardized curriculum. I like that. And, you know, and that's one thing that, that's that's one of the things I think that is that is tough to sell is that those standards curriculums, not that I have anything really bad against either one of them other than they're a standard curriculum. And like everything else, they're not like everything else in education. They're just not moving fast enough. Yes. Do you know what and I mean? And I hear it all too often. I hear it that, well, I can't use my laptop or I can't teach this lesson. I can't have a kid log on this stuff because we've got to get through this AP curriculum or this IB curriculum. They've got to pass a test. And ultimately, if you have a school that says, well, we don't judge the teachers on the scores of, of these tests, they do. Right. Um, so I think by having the AP and the IBs in place, it, it's almost like a roadblock to completely shifting, to completely doing innovative things, to completely going off and saying, we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about this one thing because the kids want to talk about it. Right. And Brent, Jim, why don't you give a, an example of what we call ex, expeditions and uh, in, in how they're very student-centered and, and driven to a large degree by the student interest as an example of what we try to do. As we develop our curriculum, what we're doing is we are... We've got exhibitions, which are the end of the institute, large presentations. And we've also got these things that are, um, that are called expeditions. And it's based on the idea that um, we're going on a journey together. We're going on a trip together. Um, each one of us has certain roles to fill. Um, if we're going to climb a mountain, some are going to be the porters, some are going to be down at base camp doing you know, whatever. But we're all on this journey together. And what the journey is is to learn something. So we build these expeditions up, and these expeditions are anywhere from 8 to 10 weeks. So in any one year, you'll take like three expeditions with your kids. So you, you use UBD, and you start with the end, like what do I want the kids to learn by the end of this expedition? And it's usually some project, a hands-on project, which is student-centered. The kids are making movies about something. They're doing artwork. They're doing whatever. They're representing their knowledge about that in the own way that they want. So you start with that. You tell the kids up front, this is, what, this is where we're going to get to. And then you spend eight to ten weeks building some sort of journey to get the kids there. That's great. Jeez, Louise. I mean, I don't know what to say. Like, I'm like, that's perfect. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Why aren't we all doing this? You know, you and said it, buddy. It's it's. I don't know. You know, and I think you know. I think you hit it on the head, Brian, when you said a lot of schools have history, and the history sometimes slows us down. Yeah, you know, we're we're too used to having AP programs and IB programs, and our school boards know what that means, yeah. and we are still pushing kids to to do these programs, and then you know teachers get in those programs, and in order for your kid to pass the IB test, uh, you know IB is the International Baccalaureate for those of you out there, or AP Advanced Placement if you're in the U.S. system, uh, but you know they get so focused on the content that's in those that are in those uh, curriculum programs that they just don't have time to do things like allow you to talk for weeks on a conversation. Right. You know, that's it, it, It's frustrating for me because I, I constantly have teachers from around the world asking to connect with the school in China. 
And I go to teachers time and time again, and time and time again, teachers come back and say, I just don't have the time to do it. It sounds right. great. I would love to do it, but we've got to cover this, this, and this, and the kids are sitting exams next week. Yep. And that's frustrating, you know, and, and I don't know. You know, I mean, as we were rethinking everything, I mean, one of the things that one of the journey um, of staff was to really try to get them to imagine, like, when they walked in the doors of HIS, they've gone through some sort of uh, um, box or some sort of magic machine which wiped their memory. And they had no preconceived notions of what schools were. And then it says, now, now that you've wiped away those all those notions about what school is and what it should be, now let's start building. And I think that if you can wipe away those notions and then start building, then you have a chance. But as long as we continue, like you said, to hold on to the idea of what schooling should look like, you're always going to fall back on what you know. Yeah. That's it. And I mean, that's, that's yeah, the history speak, part. Speaking yeah. of schooling, that's a good lead-in for uh, another one of the components of the program here. And, and when I say lead-in, uh, for Clay Burrell, who talks about trying not to do too much schooling or unschoolingness, I think was the term. Um, one of the neat things here uh, is something called choice, which Clay had shared in uh, one of our previous podcasts where he had an elective class where he was working with kids to look out, look out around themselves and say, what are your interests? What do you want to pursue? What do you want to find out more about? And he gave some examples of working with his kids. And that's one of the, the components that's structured into the system here. So Brent, you want to share where that came from, this idea of giving kids just pretty much total choice over one component of something they want to pursue and learn more about. The idea really came from looking at kids when you're young, when you're a little kid just exploring the world and figuring things out and using your hands and then all of a sudden schooling tends to be, you know, it tells you exactly um, what to teach and what to learn and what to do and what to study and we, we wanted to kind of capture that again in terms of uh, it's like giving the kids, let, like letting them study whatever they wanted to. Um, so once a week we have this thing called choice. Sounds kind of funny now that I say once a week. But where they can pick um, anything that they want to study and they study that over a period of about three to four months. Now when you mean anything, I mean is it literally anything or is it like anything within the select classes that your school offers? No, because we're not offering them because the kids are driving it. Oh, so, cool. for example, if the kids want to do sewing, which was one of the things that they wanted to learn, they want to learn how to like design dresses, they had to go out and find sewing teachers to come in and do it. So we didn't have to be experts within our walls on sewing. We used the outside. It's, it's very much thinking like we can't do it within our four walls, yeah. within our school. So let's get people out there to come in and help us. So we've had kids sewing, we've had kids break dancing and street dancing and opera singing and um, um, right now there's a music jam session and there's uh, kids studying black holes. I mean pretty much whatever the kids want to do and it's not driven by the teachers. It, like the teachers are there to coach the kids but they're not experts in it. You know what's funny is everything that you just explained is all arts based for the most part. Isn't that interesting when kids have yeah. a choice? That's that's also something about our school that we were very um, we're very conscious of is the arts at our school is as important as the academics. Um, and when you look at the way that we have our schedule, the arts and the academics have equal weight. 
And one of the things that we're looking at starting next year is they have an actual arts type degree where you can graduate from our school in like an arts degree. Um, so you can specialize in visual arts or performing arts or theater or whatever, but all kids have to have at least the basic level of arts and some of the more specialized kids within the senior institute can actually take that to the next level. Yeah. So if I'm at a school that's looking to shift, where do you suggest I start? Uh, you build your own school. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was that easy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's – I think it's extremely difficult to do it from within. I think you can do elements of it, and you can, you can, you can shift parts. You can have a, um, a very shifted classroom. You can have a very shifted experience here and there, but for the whole school to shift – you can't have that history. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think you can do it with the history. Nope. And you know what's funny is I totally agree with that in that I think what you're going to see over the next five, I'd say five to ten years, is you're going to see schools that are going to get – that are going to start up. You know, you're, more schools like your school that's going to start up, that's going to completely rearrange the way kids think, the way kids learn, the choices kids have within the four walls. And that is going to, I mean, schools that don't shift are going to be all of a sudden looking around, figuring, trying to figure out where all their kids went. Because if I'm, you know, if I'm a kid and I get to go choose once a week for whatever it is, what is it, hour they get a choice? Yeah, at so, this point, yeah. Yeah, so I get an hour once a week to study whatever it is I want to study. Am I going to go there and I get a laptop and I'm connected and I get a, you know, I'm sure you guys are doing all these other cool things and just the whole setup. It seems like as a student, I'm more control of my learning than in an old and in an old system. But the funny thing about it is, though, is that's not what all students are looking for. So that's true. Like how how my thinking has shifted on this is more so it's like an open world, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's like there's room for all of us to be here. There's room for the traditional, there's room for the shifted schools, there's room for the ultra-shifted schools. And let's just all coexist, and let's, um, let's embrace each other's strengths. Um, because we've had some schools that have left, or we've had some kids that have left our school because they couldn't adapt to what we're asking of them. Right. Uh, well, and you know that's true, but I get you know that's part of it. You know, I guess that's part of it, right? Choice. That's what we talk about. We want to be able to give kids choice. Yep. And that goes back. We in, in one of our previous podcasts, we talked a lot about getting to the kids when they're younger and starting these programs in the elementary school. Um, so I guess part of it, that discussion was about trying to keep the passion alive. And that so often the schoolingness gets in the way and they start to fit into the big factory way that we do a lot of our schools, traditional schools. And so the more that we can have, like, here we go, Jeff, our baseball uh, farm system, right. and we get these kids young and working with them to uh, keep them in, uh, in charge of their learning and excited about their learning. And then it's just more of a natural feed because it's, it's interesting what Brent just said. We have advi- advisories huge here. Uh, Ken Willis is our uh, one of our administrators that heads that up, and it's just it's a fabulous system that's growing. Where I've been at other schools where people don't buy into it, uh, they're not comfortable with it. But with the nature of our teachers, again, people that um, 
Brent and Grant hire, it works and it, it connects and expands our community uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but we were just having that discussion the other day that some of the kids that have come over from the traditional Taiwanese schools, they're really struggling that we don't yeah. do direct instruction. They're, they're saying, Mr. Carpenter, I want to memorize this. And I'm going, no, you can go to the web and get this information on ancient Greece anytime. But what I want to help you do is make connections. And, and yeah. there's some concepts we're working on here that, guess what, you're going to be able to use and apply again and again in history and in your personal life and in science class and math class. And it's going to take some time. And we're helping the kids do their own shifts. But in time, as, as, as Brent has shared, it's going to take a few years. The more that we get these younger students in, and they're just. This is just the norm. They're used to it. Right. And I you wanted have to, to get them young. Yeah. Well, yes, that's it, right? Because I mean, one of the things we always talk about is by the time the kids get to middle school, high school, they expect you just to give them the information because we've yep. we've t- taught the exploration out of them, right? We've yep. we don't want them to. We want them to. They they know how to play school. That's what we've said, right? They know how to play school. Uh, there's a couple questions in the chat, real quick, that I said I would ask you. One of them was, let me find them again. Um, one, one, a comment somebody made in the chat was, we can't stop trying to shift just because, you know, there are going to be old schools. There's are, you know, brand new schools that are starting up that have no history, but we have to remember that we can't, uh, we can't stop trying to shift. And the other one is, is are you planning to grow this type of school beyond the borders of Taiwan? Yes. My, um, my vision is to actually, start about five or six of these schools all over the world and have this be like the flagship model school and connect the schools digitally as well as philosophically. So what you can have is you can have a kid that's in second institute at our school, like, you know, in Taiwan, you go to Africa for one year and they can study there and you can do, you know, exchanges and you can work on projects together. You can work on, you can do math problems together with some buddy in Bhutan um, so yes, my ultimate dream is to take this to different places. And just remember my email address when you do. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things about this, though, that really, I mean, you know, you've got to start young and you have to be small. Yeah. We have 60 students at our school, and it feels like it's hard some days to do a good job with 60 kids. Um, our top number for grades 7 through 12 will get up to 110, but then we're, you know, we will stop. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty hard in larger schools, I think, sometimes to, you know, do this. So I think as, as, as you think about shifting and as you, you know, think about starting a school like this, you have to, um, you, you know, you have to do it small. And there are ways of doing that within a large school, you know, creating smaller schools within like larger schools. So how many teachers do you have? Uh, 13. For 60 kids. Are you K-12 or just? Uh, we're in charge of 7 through 12. 7 through yeah. 12. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So we're pretty, yeah, we're, we're very small. Yeah. But you know, you gotta, I think it's a, it's a good place to start. And like you said, I think it's going to take generations. You know, yeah. as soon as, if, if you can get some of those seventh graders in there and teach them, you know, how to explore, how to make connections and understand that they can go find the content themselves and your job as, as a school is to help them make connections with that content. Then by the time you get into high school, you're going to have some amazing kids making some amazing connections. That'd be just fantastic. Absolutely. Like right now we've got these kids because one of the things that we're doing at our school is we're having the kids help design the inside of the school. So they're building different parts of it. 
So we left the school unfinished in, so that kids can, you know, design and build a student lounge. And right wow. now we've got, um, like the art room, the student lounge, the, you know, music rooms and other parts. And we've got a student lounge. We've got a group of kids that are actually going out there and they designed the student lounge. Now they're raising the money for it. And wow. they're approaching businesses and they're actually starting up their own business. So they're becoming CEOs of their own businesses right now in high school to approach other businesses to get money to get the funds for this particular project. So we've got the CEO of this company. We've got the art director of this company who's going to do all the wall designs. We've got the, they did these beautiful 3D models of these art rooms. And it's like those types of things that as we start to shift even more than what we have shifted right now, we want to have that's what the kids are doing in all their classes. Wow. Learning through those types of experiences. Yeah. Uh, is this school part of the Coalition of Essential Schools? Yes, it is. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. And so are there other schools like this already starting up? Overseas? Yeah. Or are you the first one overseas? Um, I don't know for the first, but I don't know of any others. I know that there's some other CES schools overseas, but I'm not for sure exactly what they're doing. The thing about CES is you, you've got the 10 different common principles, but how the schools implement them are very different. Yeah. Um, so. That's great. Well, and and on that note, one of the things uh, that I'm I'm so enjoying having worked at a couple of very large institutions in the in the last few years is the the one of the uh, essential guidance uh, guiding beliefs here is less is more. You hear that a lot, but it really is the case. And instead of having ten to or more student learning outcomes, there are five. And uh, through our leadership team, we're reminded that when we are going to potentially add a new program or have new ideas or what we're doing in our classes, they need to come back to those uh, learning outcomes. And it, and it keeps us focused because one of the things is back to these big schools with their big, well, with their cultures and their histories, to me, I kind of use the metaphor of the, the house that has 20 coats of paint on it and uh, yeah. three additions and you kind of lose sight of what that school originally was. And there might be a, a, a very nice mission statement and, and strategic plan, but so often with so many people going in different directions and it's, you know, it's a big ship that's hard to, to change directions, yeah. you lose sight of, of what your focus is. And we hear it again and again in, in the field of technology that we say it isn't about technology, it's about yeah. learning. Right. And, and that's what happens with a lot of our schools. And Jeff, I, I wanted to add one more comment. I, this kind of have a, a underlying theme here of the market and competition that we'd previously spoken, beginning with the uh, Learning 2.0 conference. The whole idea that in the the educational market out there in the classrooms, that kids are going to start bypassing teachers, uh, especially if they're yeah. going to have laptops and they're going to. Yeah. Uh, make connections on their own. They might not go through the flat classroom project or something like that. They're just going to say, I'm going to go out there and find information on my own. Um, and, and I think that that's going to happen. I think you've got a, a great point that there's the potential now for these, for schools with, with the right leadership and connected to parents. We have these, these corporate parents out there that want 21st century learners, these communication, critical thinking skills that we talk so much about. They want those workers. 
and they know that, hey, I'm here in Asia right now or I'm in Europe or Africa and my kids are going to be here. Right. And that's what I want my kids to have. So they're gone and I'm going to help start up a new school. And, and I know there, you know, there are people out there like Mike Lambert who's going to be on in a couple of weeks. If he would love to go someplace and start a new school if you, if you, if he had the right backing. And, mm-hmm. and you know, who knows? Maybe you and uh, he and Brent will connect someplace. Yeah. Well, it, and, you know, I keep coming back to this and I think that's part of the reason why I think we're going to see a shift and shifting schools like this overseas international schools before we see in places like in Australia or America or places that are very entrenched in the way they do things for a couple of reasons. One, most of us have school boards that are ran by these, you know, that have, that have members, school board members who are very technological, technologically advanced. Either they are CEO of their own company or like you said, we, we are international. We're expat. We understand what it means to be connected. And I think if nothing else, that's going to help international schools. I mean, we're going through the same thing here when we're starting discussions about going one to one. And I, most, most schools that I've talked to in the Asia region, it's not the, it, for most part, it's not the school board that holds them back. The school board, by the time they get to the school board, I mean, you have to have all your ducks in a row, but by the time they get to the school board, they find out that the school board is kind of like, well, yeah. You know, we, we need to be right. going there. Our kids need to be doing this because we're all expats too. And, you know, we've got the general manager of, uh, you know, GM sitting on our board and we've got Dale right out our back door. And, you know, and these parents look at, I, you know, will look at you and say, well, yeah, duh. And that's what we do every day. I mean, that's why we're here in Shanghai or we're there in Taiwan or, you know, it's because of this connected in these 21st century skills. These parents are some of the first you know, first parents to really take advantage of that. First people to take advantage of that. Yeah, and if there's any place that it can happen where you're not so bound by the standards and everything, it's going to be overseas. Yeah, I agree. However, you got the AP and the IB, which tie your hands overseas. Yeah. Um, to prevent you from fully shifting. Um, and I think once you have those programs in place, it's pretty hard to convince parents to give them up. I agree. And so, and, and that's the shift. That's a parent shift. Yeah. Now, are all of your kids expat? Uh, no, we've got very few expat kids, actually. Oh, really? Oh, We're mostly all, all Taiwanese. Yeah. So that's taken a lot of time to convince the parents, and it was a pretty rough first six months, and I think we're over the difficult part. Well, um, and I, I, you know, I've always said that. I think the parents are the hardest part because we are all experts to education, right? We yes, all had yes. 13 years of training. We know yep, yep. what school should look like, feel like, smell like, and taste like, right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. every parent has gone through it. Every parent knows. And if it's different, I mean, even just like, you know, student-led conferences are different than the way our parents did it. And it's interesting because they did not like it this last fall. They were very uncomfortable. They wanted to be in a closed door with just the teacher. They didn't want the kid to be there. It was very, and now we can't keep them away, you know, the second, and it happened at my last school too when we did it. But, you know, you got to get them over that fear. And once you do, they're like, well, this is cool and this is better. But, you know, we're all such experts. And that's the part that just kills me. But the thing about like even even like shifting philosophically entrenched teachers is hard to shift philosophically entrenched parents. Exactly. That's why when you when you start up a new school like this, or if you do it within a school that's already there, um, people are are going to come to you for what you are. 
And over time, over two or three years, people are going to come to your school because this is the type of school you are, and they're going to leave your school because this is the you know type of place you are. Right. Um, and and that's what we're finding right now. We've kind of we're going through that 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 rough phase. Um, but now people are starting to figure out who we are, and the kids that are coming to our school are coming to it because they know what our school's about. The staff that are looking for our school, they're coming to our school because they want a different experience. Yeah. Um, well, and yeah, I mean, it's parent. It, it's a big parent education piece too. And and I think in Asia, that's another one of our challenges, is yeah. that you know our our Asian parents, uh, for the most part, were not. Most of them were not educated even in the Western world. And so I think it's even a more of a jump for them. You know, they push their kids to go to school all day for six hours. And then, you know, some of our kids go off to Chinese class or go off to, you know, Taiwanese lessons after school or Korean lessons after school for four hours, then have two hours of violin before they go home and do three hours of homework. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's... Uh, you said it. Yeah. The funny thing about it is, though, is that since we are mostly, you know, Taiwanese, we're ninety-five percent Taiwanese. We've got, I've got some of the most supportive parents here that I've ever had in my life, um, yeah. in terms of the philosophy and in terms of what we're doing. So it, it is possible, and we were. I mean, I was, I was told that it was not possible to to actually do this in Asia. That if we tried a school like this here, we would fail. And um, I don't think it's possible. I think all kids, all parents, whether you're, you know, Chinese or American or you know, Indian, wherever, that they just want their parents, their kids to be loved. And they want their kids to be loved and to have a wonderful school experience. And if you can demonstrate that that's what you're doing, they will support you. Yeah. And again, I think it's just education, right? It, yes. It's just you have to get out in front of parents and say, and like you said, you know, get out in front of parents and say, this is the school we are. This is the school we want to become. Either you're with us or you're not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean... I don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think it's about time to start wrapping this up. Uh, David, do you have a post you'd like to share with us? I, I do. Uh, I've got three, and I'll, I'll share them pretty quickly. They'll, they'll be up on the uh, show notes page, and we'll have them in Delicious as well. Uh, first is uh, Powerful Learning Practices, and uh, that's a site put together by Cheryl Nussbaum Beach and Will Richardson. And I think they've received some grant money, and they're doing some uh, educational professional development uh, work, and it's a specific model that they've put together that's centered on social networking tools and shifting instructional strategies that they're going into schools that participate in helping them make the shift. So back to the kind of evolutionary effort that I mentioned that in, uh, that the person mentioned in the uh, chat room, that we've got to still keep... Uh, fighting the good fight uh, in our big schools, even though uh, I think Brent's right on, it's it's just very very difficult to do. But we we've got to do everything we can. Yeah, and I'll uh, just I'll just add to that. Yeah. I know both Cheryl and Will personally, and what they are doing and the model they're using is fantastic. And I think if you're talking about trying to shift a large organization that has some history 
their model is a proven model that works and I know they're having great success with it this year. Excellent. And it's something that, that we're definitely, I think we need to bring internationally and then looking at ways to try to bring into some international schools. It's a great model because it's, it, again, it starts small, but it starts, you know, with both the, you know, the tools and the philosophy that needs to change within a school and allowing that to spread over time. And it's not a conference where you go in and have a keynote and have five. It's in depth yes. professional training to help teachers move up. So I uh, I was going to use that post too, David. So I had to add my little two bit too. There you go. Well, and that's yeah, that's you know, one of the top things is the professional development that's ongoing, and it's just part of it, part of the learning culture of a of a school. If you're going to shift, and making the time for uh, for people to feel like they can do it, and it's not an add on. So I'll just throw that in as well. Continuing on the Cheryl Nussbaum uh, uh, Beach uh, Gravy Train here, she she's quite a, a, a force in the blogosphere, and she came up with another terrific post, I felt, called Nine Principles uh, for Implementation of the Big Shift. And uh, take a look. Go to her, her site again. We'll have the um, link up. And just very, very thoughtful. Cheryl, I think, has almost finished her. Has she finished her degree at William & Mary? I think, she's I think she just finished, yep. Just finished. So if she's connected to this podcast listening, congratulations. Cheryl, and uh, just really thoughtful and get you thinking there with those themes. And then the final uh, post is by an educational consultant, Rick Pierce, who's here working at Sinshu International School. And back to the point uh, we were just making that if, if, if you want to work with your teachers, you've got to have uh, a professional development program that's not the one-shot deal on a, on a Friday, a PD day. It's got to be ongoing. So again, the, the very visionary leadership of Sensu um, International School has had Rick come over a few times, but now he's here for a whole semester living and being in this school every day and really giving us uh, great guidance on our strategic plan, uh, advising our administrators. But he's got a wonderful post, and he talk about uh, being a risk taker, which is one of the themes of our of our podcast uh, in each of our shows. He um, asked me, he said, Dave, I want to learn more about educational leadership uh, blogging and what, what do people have to say out there. And I, I was able to find a, a little bit, uh, a couple sites for him. But then he just said, you know, I'm just going to start my own. And he, and he jumped right into it. And he um, put together a post all about change and the, and the, the really important aspect that follows change, the initial change, is the transition and how that's a, a, a mightily overlooked aspect of the of the shifting process. So all three of those will be up on our website. Yeah. D- did you find uh, Leader Talk for him? Do you know the same no, Leader no, Talk? No, no, no. Leader Could Talk. You? Yeah, yeah. I'll throw that. I'll throw that in the uh, in the chat. LeaderTalk.org is a fantastic site. Actually, it's uh it's ran by Scott McLeod, and basically what he did is he went out and he got a bunch of administrators who were blogging or wanted to share their shifting theories and so it's a it's a group blog but it, they're all administrators and Ooh, so wow. it's a great place for administrators that are just getting started or you want that you know want to get them in that shifting feel uh, it's a mm-hmm. great place to start and they cover i mean you have administrators from all over the world talking about at all levels and they're all they, it's a it's a great blog <laughs> It really is a good place to get started for administrators to see what other administrators are doing out there. And, of course, most of those administrators have their own blog, and so you link to those, and 
next thing you know, you've got a hundred of them. So excellent. That's cool. Brent, do you have a link for us you'd like to share? I've actually got a book for you. Perfect. A good old-fashioned book. It's called A Mind at a Time, Mel Levine. Um, what the book is, is they say that this guy is America's top learning expert. It's quite a title. Um, but it gets into the brain research, and what it does is it tries to have you look at kids through their mind's eye. Say, let's look at each kid's mind, and let's understand like why this kid isn't learning. Um, there is no such thing as a lazy kid. There's no such thing. There is no such thing as a kid that doesn't want to succeed. Let's 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 figure out inside his mind what his mind is doing and how we can help this kid to succeed. So it really gets into the whole philosophy that we have at our school of one child at a time, looking at every single kid, designing the curriculum to suit the needs of that particular kid, and looking at what their mind is doing and what the research is saying to um, to really help them. Cool. So. That's the book that I would suggest, and he's got a website and a group. It's called Schools Attuned, and you can go on that to look for more information about workshops and other things that Mel has. So, yeah, it's a really good book. Good. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to – excuse me. I'm going to go with a a wiki tonight called newliteracy.wikispaces.com, and I have to say I had a little – you know, there's a little in with this, but yeah. uh, basically, <laughs> this is a, a site started by uh, the technology people down at International School of Bangkok as they've started looking at how are they going to shift their schools. And so you can, it, it's a great one. They're calling it Curriculum 2.0. They made an uh, an amazing little trailer video there on the uh, on the blog or on the wiki. You can go there and watch a little YouTube uh, trailer video. Oh. And, uh, you know, it's, it's this kind of stuff that when I was looking for a job last year, it was this kind of stuff that I was looking for. I was looking for a school that was, you know, looking at shift, thinking deeply about shift and a school that could get me excited to be there about shifting it and moving it forward. And this is one of the things, uh, Justin Medved and Dennis Harder, who have both been on our show, I think at this point, if not, they will be, I'm sure in the future. But uh, they have done a lot of work with this. So has Kim Cofino uh, and working with their administrators around a lot of their thoughts. And it's a great website to just see how that school's doing it. It's not mm-hmm. might not work for every school, but, you know, they've got some great stuff on there that you can take and, and maybe, uh, you know, use it in another school that's starting to shift as well. So so that's my link for the night. And, and cool. Jeff, um, and that, that ties back into this whole idea of, one of the ways that we're going to affect learning is is having a a good strong curriculum uh, model that's flexible and adaptable in that you've got your educational specialists that are part of that curriculum uh development team and i know that's something that they've been talking about there in bangkok and i can say it's it's well worth it we we did that at, in in hong kong and it just it makes a big difference and i also wanted to remind you to put a plug in for the learning 2.0 conference oh, right. to get Get people thinking about that. My That's friend. right. Registration is now open. I, I, thanks for that. I appreciate it. I've been so wrapped into it. I don't even remember. Uh, yeah. So seeing that you mentioned, I'll put a plug in for it and I'll give you the link as well. But the Learning 2.008 conference is now looking for registers. If you're in the Asia region or if you're not in the Asia region and you want to have a chance to come to you need a, an excuse to come to Shanghai. You can uh, fly on over. We got just an amazing group of people again this year. I don't know how we do it. It's incredible. We've got uh, 
We've got Clarence Fisher coming in. We've got George Siemens, who did the connectivism theory. We've got David uh-huh. Warlick, David Jake, Cheryl Newspawn Beach is coming back. Uh, Ewan, uh, Ewan uh, McIntosh is coming in. Uh, Alan Levine. And there's eight. I always forget one. And on the site's loading here. I got one more. But anyway, we've got a fantastic crew coming in. And uh, we're really excited about getting all these people in here. And we're really looking again. You know, last year we tried to push ourselves on looking at different models of what does the difference look like in the 21st century. And we want to do that again. And we've had a couple of planning meetings and our last planning meeting, we really started getting into how this conference was going to look. And it's great because Michael Lambert, who is going to be here next week, and I'll let you plug him. Uh, he, we were kind of stuck on the way we wanted things to work. And I'm really pushing an unconference format. Yes. And, uh, we're looking at that and a couple, oh, Marco Torres. Thank you. Marco Torres is the eighth person. So, uh, so we were looking at that and, and we were kind of stuck, you know, and it's this whole history thing, right? We've all been to conferences. We know what conferences should look like. And it was great because Michael finally told us to just kind of shut up for a second and think and pushed our thinking. And I think we've come up with some amazing, amazing ways that we're going to push this conference. Twitter is going to be a big piece. Uh, our, our speakers are going to do like a, they don't know this yet, but they're going to do like a Ted talk. They get five minutes Whoa. to make a passionate plea. And then based on that, people are going to get to vote who they want to see at roundtable discussions. So it's going to be – we've got some really cool things that we're trying to do. It's uh, September 18th through the 20th. And so if you can come, it's going to be a conference you don't want to miss. And we're going to be you streaming it live and podcasting every session and trying to keep it much of it. We're looking at doing a, a week pre-conference before in Second Life. So you'll be introduced to people and tools in Second Life. The whole week before will be a pre-conference. We're trying to set that up now. So there's just a lot of things we're trying to do. So make sure you buy your tickets. It'll be after <laughs> the Olympics. So ticket prices will be back down. And uh, we'll, we're going to have a great time here in Shanghai. Shanghai. So, yeah, thanks for that. Great. That was a good plug. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And well, we'll, let's, yeah, let me segue real quickly for next week. Yeah, uh, it is. It is a week. I was thinking two weeks. April seventeenth, our guest will be Michael Lambert, uh, educator extraordinaire. And what a great segue! You just described Michael, uh, a, a very wise and community oriented. Uh, master teacher who who worked with your group and helped move you along because he's going to help share with us uh, how to answer the question how to go deep in our learning and then why should we go deep you know why should we give up this wonderful world of a mile wide and an inch deep curriculum you know are we crazy to give that up yes we should give it up and Mike's going to help us get there yeah he he's a good guy he'll push you he's he's I I love Michael Lambert he's a good guy all right. So that's it for this episode. We thank everybody for tuning in. And until April 17th, keep shifting those schools. Thank you. Thanks, yeah, thanks guys. Thanks for coming Appreciate up. It. Awesome. Yeah, thank you, guys. Uh, no Alan November this year. Darren Murphy was asking if Alan November was coming back. We couldn't get him back to the conference, but he is going to be at the Heroes Academy.